Between lightning and thunder, three seconds the gap. A warm candle glow keeps this wood room from black. My cat, she sleeps on an old clipping mat, purring out echoes a faint pitter pat. Hello, and welcome to the perennial porridge pot. Podcast, Episode 5. I'm your presenter, Roger Meacham. In these podcasts, you'll be listening to work both from those native to Scotland and those who, like myself, have come to live here. Wherever you are in the world, you may hear something that speaks to you, not only because Scotland has made connections with every corner of the planet, but because the contributors are from every corner of the planet. In this podcast, we meet Rick Gamak a writer presently working on a sci-fi novel that might be categorised as steampunk. You'll hear a little more about this during our conversation, but first we meet Rick as he tells us a story. A story about cheese. A story that might make you decide, if you aren't already, to consider becoming a vegan. Please, please don't listen to this story alone, especially not in an old house, one that might have an old disused cupboard. Over to you, Rick. Life is often simply a case of eat or be eaten. Some creatures, perhaps lacking the wherewithal to do otherwise, accept their fate stoically. Others fight back. When the mouse squeezed through the crack beneath the warped door and into the dark pantry, it thought it had died and gone to heaven, or might have had its imagination been great enough to encompass such a conceit. Its small nose twitched pinkly as it detected the dry smell of old corn, the sweetness of forgotten apples, and the pungent tang of ripening cheese. For a while, the mouse lived alone, happily feasting on the forgotten provisions. But then another mouse joined her, and soon, in another of the world's many ways, there were lots of little mice. The family grew, safe from cats and dogs, hawks and stoats, so they felt indeed that they were blessed. Nothing, so they thought, shared their enclosed space. But they were wrong. Something else was in the darkness, ripening. On the top shelf of the pantry, where the air was cool and still, was a line of five slowly maturing goat's milk cheeses, each threaded through with fine blue-green lines. This coloration was, of course, and there is no delicate way of putting it, mould. Carefully cultivated mould, to be sure, deliberately introduced into each round cheese via long skewers, but mould nonetheless. It was, however, special, 
not your run-of-the-mill random result of drifting spores and contaminated surroundings. It was, one might say, royalty amongst moulds. Have you seen pictures of the Habsburgs? They were royalty as well, too refined to mix with commoners, where generations of inbreeding accumulated genetic defect upon genetic defect until what was left was different. Well, the moulds belonged to that kind of lineage and it formed an alliance with the cheese. A single fly entering the pantry before the winter rains swelled the door to a tight fit within its frame, laid its eggs on one of the cheeses. In due course, the eggs turned into maggots, which began devouring the farm cheese and its fine blue-grain veins of royal mould. Some of the small wriggling things, mere babies really, had delicate constitutions. Unable to handle the rich diet, they ailed and died. The mould grew over them and around them, absorbing them into itself. And as it did so, the cheese took on some of their structure. The first random flickers of organisation, a sense of intent began to form and the intent was survival. The next generation of maggots had no chance. All died within days. The cheese had not come off unscathed. The maggots had been hungry. Metaphorically, at least, it licked its wounds. Then, also metaphorically, it licked its lips. The intent had changed. Now it had learned something new. Now it was hungry. On the floor of the pantry, meanwhile, the mice had finished the seeds of corn, had devoured the store of apples and severely reduced the sack of potatoes to a mere handful of small remnants the size of peas. This, the third generation of mice, had viewed their world with a blind assumption that everything would continue as it had with food for all. In one seeming rush, though, they went from apparent abundance, where each could find something to eat, to famine, where none could. All they had left was the aroma of cheese wafting down from above, like the torment of the gods. Driven by hunger and unable to reach the cheese, the mice tried to escape their small world. But the dry weather that had shrunk the door sufficiently for the first mice to enter had been replaced by rain. The wood had swelled until it fit the frame tightly. There was no way out. It was a small house with brown-tipped ears who discovered the broom leaning from the floor to the second shelf. Others had noticed it, of course, but in the previous era of plenty, there had been no impetus to explore. 
The mouse with the brown-tipped ears is the first to scramble up the broom handle onto the shelf above. The shelf seemed bare, but the mouse persisted. There was, after all, no point in turning back. From here, he could see the other members of his family frantically scurrying from corner to corner in vain attempts to find even the smallest scraps of food. He pressed on. At the end of the shelf stood a stack of earthenware pots with lids sealed in red wax. They held, had his nose been subtle enough to detect it, preserved fruits and berry jam, but the dust wax kept its secret well, and the mouse saw the jars as no more than convenient steps to the shelf above. The smell of cheese was strongest here, and he wriggled his whiskers in pleasure at the sight of the five cheeses laid out in a row. It didn't bother him in the slightest that the formerly round cheeses had sagged and subsided into each other to form a single mass, or that their polished rind had softened with blue-green fur. He was a mouse, and it was cheese. They were made for each other. It was all he needed, or thought he needed, to know. As he nibbled ecstatically at the perimeter of this literal mountain of food, he didn't notice that it, in turn, was creeping forward, around him, and over him. Not until it was too late. But by that time, only the tip of his tail was still visible. A few moments later, even that had been slurped inside the amorphous mass, like a strand of errant spaghetti. The cheese pondered a while in its own fashion, and didn't so much as reach a decision as feel an irresistible impulse to seek out further similar nourishment. It thinned and spread out, seeking. It had neither eyes nor ears, but as it oozed over the shelf, it sensed, in a manner perhaps most similar to taste, the route that the mouse had taken. It followed the spoor backwards, rippling down the steps of earthenware pots, making no more of them than the mouse had, then back to the canted broom handle. This, as it lacked claws or grasping digits, it had difficulty negotiating. Halfway down, it began to slip to one side, the imbalance immediately causing it to slip further and faster until half its mass hung like a pendulous teardrop and would have taken the whole thing with it had it not torn free and fallen to the floor. It splattered in radiating fragments that to the hungry mice below was like manna from heaven. Too small to defend themselves, the tiny pieces were quickly consumed. The remains of the cheese cautiously resumed its descent. Unaware of the exact fate of the section that had broken away, it was only aware that it felt diminished somehow 
and that the sensation was not pleasant. So when it met two more mice, drawn by the thought of finding the source of this bounty that had rained upon them, and travelling in the opposite direction up the broom handle, it engulfed them with petulant hunger and hardly a burp. It was surprised to find that, as it absorbed the unfortunate rodents from the outside, the pieces of itself that the mice had eaten were still alive and assimilating their erstwhile consumers from the inside. Overcome with a feeling of something akin to pleasure at being reunited with itself, and eager to gather all its scattered parts back together, the cheese continued its journey to the floor. There, those mice, which had eaten most of the cheese, had already been overcome by their greed, their glossy fur supplanted by the soft tendrils of blue mould sprouting through their skin from within. The cheese advanced, incorporating their small bodies with barely a pause. Each mouse added to the cheese's bulk, and as it grew it became faster, more organised, more efficient. Those mice, not overcome from within, tried to run, but in the cramped confines of the pantry there was nowhere to run to. The very last mouse made a valiant bid to escape by running back up the broom handle to hide, quivering, at the far end of the topmost shelf. It was no good, for by now the cheese was large enough and strong enough to extend an outgrowth of its mass straight up in the air and sweep up the cowering creature in a single motion. For a while, everything was still. The cheese was alone in its universe, totally unaware of a world beyond the confines of the pantry, lacking the experience to know of it and the imagination to conceptualise it. All it knew was that there was nowhere for it to go, nowhere for it to find those wonderful nuggets of nourishment. It was growing hungry. It began to shrink. In time, the cheese would have reverted back to a small lump of rotting milk coated in mould, subsided into a sticky puddle on the floor, and ended up as no more than a lingering stain on the floorboards. But before that, something new entered its life. It detected the change first as a vibration in the air that stirred the fine filaments of the mould. Had it had ears, it would have realised they were sounds. Must have been deserted for years. Come on, let's have a look around. Never know what we might find. Is it safe? Just make sure you don't put your foot through a rotten floorboard. Hello, I wonder where this door leads. The cheese had no idea what the vibrations meant, but suddenly its universe expanded into a new realm of warmth and light. And there was food. Thank you, Rick. I'll sleep well tonight. Now, for the remainder of our podcast, 
I'd like to ask you a question or two. And after that story, I have to ask, where do you get your ideas? Um, getting ideas, it, it's a very interesting area. I have tried all sorts of things to get ideas. Um, one method, if I can't think of anything else, I'll pick three random words out of a dictionary and just try and pick them from that. But, but stories come from, from different places. This particular story, Cheddar Gorging, uh, I just don't know. I, I came up with the ridiculous idea of carnivorous trees and the story just emerged. Um, so I've got no idea where it came from. I don't feel I could claim credit for it. And, and, you know, it's, it's almost sort of supernatural. Um, but other other stories, you know, you, you start off with a point and, and it can be an opening line, it can be a character, it can be an end point. But identifying what it is is part of the battle because then you know where it fits in a story. So that if you have a character, you're sort of saying, right, well, okay, what does this character want um, that will drive the character and what thwarts them from getting it? And if you have an end point, well, this will make a dramatic ending. Well, what is it the conclusion of? You know, who wanted what? Because all stories come back down to this idea is somebody wants something, somebody tries to stop them, they argue or have a conflict, and the matter's resolved. So if you recognise those steps, then it's easier to construct a story. OK, Rick, that's building a story from a seed idea, a character, a beginning or an ending. But once you've begun, do you follow a plan you've mapped out or do you Jump in and figure it out as you go along. I've done a lot of jumping straight in. What I'm doing at the moment, I'm working on a, a novel and I've got all the plans for that novel and I've got a, you know, a, a future course plotted out for it. But I'm, I'm doing each chapter as it comes and as each chapter comes... I introduce new little details, and then those little new details spin off like butterfly wings in the forest uh, and have all sorts of strange consequences. And uh, that's what's quite interesting about it. So at the moment, it's I know where I'm going if I'm stuck. Um, to bring it back onto line, but I'm also having fun just seeing where it goes. So sometimes, like your cheese in the story you're telling us, sometimes your character takes over. Your character develops perhaps in ways that are unexpected? Yes, very much. That certainly happens a lot. And this method of writing that I've currently been trying out is leading much more in that way 
you know, the, the, because I write the chapter, but let it, that chapter go where it wants, where, you know, the characters have got a very rough plan for where I'm going to take them. And then they come away with a phrase, and you, a single way that you phrase something for a character can reveal a whole new past to them. Thank you, Rick. That was Rick Gamak first reading Cheddar Gorging and then telling us a little about how he writes. The novel he's working on at present involves airships and licentious burlesque, and I know that Rick is creating his own graphic images of the characters. In fact, he might have met one or two of their prototypes during his early career when he pulled pints for Hell's Angels and built steeplechase jumps at Cheltenham Racecourse. Please visit lemontreewriters.co.uk where you can read Cheddar Gorging for yourself. I hope that you enjoyed the bedtime story. Now, off you go to make a sandwich. Mm, best not a cheese sandwich, eh? I'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, listen to an excerpt from Martin Stevenson's Rain, sung here by Helen McCookery Book. Goodbye for now. My subconscious and I back on speaking terms he's sending me colors and beautiful words and far far away are the harsh city folk I'm surrounded by countries